And now I was completely blind outside the spaceship. So what's the scariest thing you've ever done? May 2013, astronaut Chris Hadfield performs a cover to David Bowie's Space Odyssey. Ground control to Major Tom. That he records when he's the commander at the International Space Station. Ground control to Major Tom. David Bowie, when he hears the rendition, tweets out, Hello, space boy. Lock your Soyuz hatch and put your helmet on. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of the platform ChatterThatMatters.ca. It's presented by RBC. And whether we're doing a radio show, podcast, poster, video, our intent is to help you get where you need, want, and deserve to go. And on this show, I talk with ordinary people who are doing extraordinary things. And in doing so, we uncover life lessons that we can all apply to be more and do more. Commencing countdown engines on. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. But it's time to guide the capsule if you dare. So, Chris, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Uh, it's my pleasure. Nice to be speaking with you, Tony. What's the best way to describe you? Downhill ski racer, test pilot, astronaut, musician, spacewalker, commander of the space station, or author of a new book called The Apollo Murders? Gosh, I'm all those things, Tony. Uh, it kind of depends when in my life you're asking or, or uh, what topic you're asking about. But yeah, you know, I think it was one of the great science fiction authors who said, hey, we're people, you know, specialization is for insects. We should be doing a lot of different things. So, so yeah, I, I'm passionately involved in all those things and and i consider myself very lucky to be um, most recently an author but i work with space companies and and um, working very closely with moon settlement policy right now of of how that's going to happen in human history developing other companies and teaching at university and playing a lot of music i was supposed to be touring with bowie's band this last year but uh but because of COVID, that's been curtailed. So, yeah, I, I, I enjoy all those different facets of life. But please just uh, call me Chris. So we have so much to cover, but I watched one of your TED Talks when you described the first time you went into space. Can you just take our listeners back to the first time you realized that that kid that used to dream about going into space was actually heading there? Sure. I've been lucky enough to fly in space three times, uh, twice on the U.S. space shuttle and once as the pilot of a Russian Soyuz. The first time in life, the first time you do something is often uh, the most special, the most revelationary. And it's the culmination of everything to that point in, in your life because you are about to do something you've been dreaming of since you were a little kid. You're doing something that you have been working towards for decades to gain the skills to be trusted to go do it. It's been a huge definer of your life and the choices you had to make and the places you've lived and what it's done with your yourself and your family. And it's extremely dangerous. And it's something you passionately believe in and want to do. So all of those things are about to happen. So you come out that morning uh, exquisitely prepared, but very, very excited. Uh, but also with 
with an ability to calm yourself because of all of the things that you know and, and the understanding and the practice you've gone through. And you wake up and, and you don't eat much because, you know, uh, when you get the weightlessness, you're probably going to be motion sick. So you don't want to you don't want to see your breakfast again. So most people don't actually eat anything. And then getting dressed is hard because you have to wear a pressure suit in case there's a leak in the spaceship. That takes a long time. But you do get into uh, this vehicle. We call it an astro van, which is sort of comical. And we ride in the astro van the several kilometers past the vehicle assembly building and all the spectators out to where your rocket ship is sitting on the pad, iconic there on the horizon and lit up by gigantic xenon lights in in the dawn darkness. You step out of the van at the base, get into this elevator, and eventually takes you up to the 195-foot level, 195 feet above the the launch pad, and you're there. You're you're right next to your spaceship. On one side, you can see the Atlantic Ocean now, because that's where you're going to go, out over the Atlantic. So there's the beautiful tranquility of that. The other side is all of the Kennedy Space Center. Tens of thousands of people who have come to see you launch today, including about a thousand of, of my closest friends who were there. And one by one, you crawl into the ship. I felt at the time very calm because I practiced it and I, and I knew what was happening and, and I knew the odds and I knew my role. So there's a great comfort in that. Being completely prepared for something tends to decrease the nervousness and the worry and the stress of it. But I was also as excited as I've been in my life because I was about to embark on this grand adventure. I was about to take a huge risk to go do something that was going to open a door to basically everything I'd been dreaming about and the rest of my life. That's that's a pretty interesting threshold to be standing on. Crawl into the ship and you worm your way up into your seat. And it's not really a seat, it's a couch. You're lying on your back because you launch with your belly button pointed at the sky. And there's someone there strapping you in as tight as can be because uh, it's violent. They give you a little note from your spouse and kiss you on the forehead, and and then they close the hatch. And now you and your crew are alone inside the spaceship, and there's still a fair bit of time to launch. But it's a good time for reflection. You know, we're listening to the chatter of launch control and all of the technicians, the thousands of people that are needed to launch a shuttle, check in with Houston when they come up on the radio, talk to our flight surgeon who's just telling us jokes in the background, you know, to keep everybody calm. And I was seated next to one of the most experienced astronauts in history, a guy named Jerry Ross. I think that was his fifth space flight. And I noticed about 10 minutes before launch that Jerry's knee started bouncing up and down. And I thought, hmm, if Jerry's excited, then it's okay that I'm excited. And and I don't even know if Jerry knew that his knee was bouncing just in uh, in an expression of his own emotion. But more than excited... I and the other people in the crew, uh, I was intensely focused. And I'd sort of built my whole life to be able to ignore everything else at that point, except how to make this machine work. Nothing else really mattered because my job was to work with the other astronauts inside Atlantis and overcome the terrible odds um, through our own force of will and, and tenacity and, and comprehension and make this machine do what we wanted it to do and deliver us safely to space. Pretty amazing to be in there watching the clock tick down until eventually... 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8
zero and wham the solids light this great wicked pulse of energy through your vehicle shaking you in your seat you're lying on your back on some sort of flexible chair and the whole thing shakes you know as if you were in a deck chair in an earthquake and then there's this force that begins like some giant foot just positioned itself under the small of your back and began willfully pushing you away from the world I watched the launch tower slide down and disappear out of view as we were climbing away. By the time our tail cleared that launch tower, we were already going 100 miles an hour straight up. And think what it's like to get in your car and step on the gas and, and how long it takes you to get to you know 100 miles an hour. In 45 seconds, we went through the speed of sound, going straight up. And the violence of it is kind of like nothing you've ever experienced. The shuttle is generating 80 million horsepower the relentlessness of it, and also the the huge danger of it. The risk that day was one in 38 of dying during launch. Those are pretty um, daunting odds to defeat, but it's the only way to get there. It only takes about as long as it took me to describe it here, about eight minutes and 40 seconds or so. That device has taken you from laying on your back in Florida to now being above the atmosphere, going 25 times the speed of sound with perfectly the right parameters, going exactly the right direction, and the engine shut off and you're weightless. Tony Chapman, we're chatting with Chris Hadfield. How many extraordinary things he's done in his life. When we come back, I'm going to ask Chris, what was the difference between so many kids staring at space with a big smile and you deciding to chase that dream? Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Houston, this is the International Space Station. We are ready for the event. Uh, thank you for taking the time to... Uh, be part of this in person today, uh, and to the people right across Canada. Uh, this is a wonderful thing to be part of. Each week, you can download the latest episode of Chatter That Matters as a podcast from your iHeartRadio Canada app. Now more with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. It's an entirely different perspective. You're not looking up at the universe. You and the Earth are going through the universe together. And you're holding on with one hand, looking at the world turn beside you, roaring silently with, with color and texture as it pours by. If you can tear your eyes away from that and you look under your arm, down at the rest of everything, unfathomable blackness, texture you feel like you could stick your hand into. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. It's Tony Chapman. The show's presented by RBC, and I have the great honor to talk to Chris Hadfield. We, we began by listening to Space Oddity and realize that Chris is not only a, an engineer, an astronaut, test pilot, but also an incredible musician. We're going to get a little bit more into that, the video and the music a little bit later. But Chris, I want you to take me back to your early days when you were a kid. I was reading about you, looking up into space, watching Neil Armstrong. You're one of many kids that dreamt about space, watched space movies. You went after it. What was the difference between you and so many others? I think it started with comic books, Tony. Um, Comic books, you know, when you're little, there is no line between fantasy and reality. You haven't seen enough of the world yet. It all seems about the same. You know, Superman, Santa Claus, 
And I loved comic books because they were words and images. And it helped me imagine what these things might be like. And to see in those comic books, to see people you know, leaving Earth in, in little pointy ships and going to the moon and Mars and traveling around the universe. That was cool. And then my imagination was deep enough and my knowledge was good enough that I could just read science fiction and read Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury and, and Isaac Asimov and uh, Arthur Conan Doyle and all, you know, all the interesting writers. And then Star Trek came on TV when I was, I don't know, how old was I? Seven, I guess. So I was watching first run of Captain Kirk and, and uh, Spock and all that, um, went, you know, every week out on the farm where I was living. And I went and saw 2001, A Space Odyssey in the theaters. That had all given me permission to imagine a whole different life for myself, jumbled up in my head of, of things that are out there beyond the, the flat little horizon, beyond the farmhouse where my folks were raising our family. But as you say, I watched Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Mike Collins on Apollo 11. I was nine years old and watched uh, them descend to the surface and then, you know, step out and, and Neil put his foot down and, and then um, Buzz come out after that. And what it did to me was it gave me permission to bridge fantasy and reality. Like this wasn't just a comic book. This is a thing that people were doing. This is now not a fantasy. This is a career choice. You, when, you, when you go to the guidance counselor and he says, what do, you, what do you want to do? You could say, I would like to walk on the moon because Neil and Buzz did it. Why couldn't I do it? What were the obstacles? Because I already realized I'd started with no skills and I'd gained some skills by the time I was 10. You know, not a lot, but some. So I kind of looked at, all right, what else do I need to know? And it wasn't like it was the only thing in my life. I was just a kid like anybody else. You know, I just, just goofing around and doing stupid things and learning about myself and, you know, girls and music and everything, I'm trying to be a student at school. But I realized that I wasn't going to be an astronaut accidentally. You know, the whole Don Knotts reluctant astronaut movie was cute, but uh, that's not how it works. If, if I was actually going to get chosen as an astronaut, I was going to have to change who I was. And so I thought, OK, well, cool. I'm going to grow up to be something. Why don't I grow up to be that? And so let's start doing things that, that maybe give me the skills so that someday I might have a chance to do that. So it just kind of helped shape my choices. Like, what should I do this weekend? What book should I read? What uh, what courses should I take? You know, most of your life is not spent in school. It seems like it, but it's not true. And and you have a whole bunch of time, even when you're in school, to, to sort of end independent thought. And so I just pursued it. And then as I got older, you know, I became old enough. Hey, I could get my scuba license. Astronauts do spacewalks. They dive underwater to learn how to do spacewalks. Great. That's me. One step closer to being an astronaut. And then astronauts fly in space. I kind of decided, hey, anything that is a verb, maybe I could learn to do, you know, uh, dive, fly, sing, dance, juggle, whatever it is, you know, hey, those are just verbs. And, and I could be a person who could do those things. So I, but I couldn't afford to fly. So, so I, I joined the air cadets to, uh, to, to get my pilot's license. And so, yeah, I learned to fly before I learned to learn to drive a car. A lot of the people I talk to talk about parents sort of uh, allowing people to dream it and do it. Tell me a little bit about your parents because you're looking at space. They're working a farm or two very different worlds. Um, both my folks uh, grew up on farms and they didn't get beyond high school in any sort of formal education. 
However, my father went for a ride in an airplane. His brother brought him a ride in an airplane when he was a teenager, and he decided, hmm, that's better than farming. And and so he went and got all his licenses and then became a commercial pilot. Then he worked uh, as a corporate pilot, and then he eventually got hired by an airline, and he flew as an airline pilot through his whole career while still raising us on a farm and running a 500-acre corn farm. My parents were an interesting mixture, very smart, quite well-read. They really encouraged not just curiosity, but curiosity answered. It's easy to be curious and just to say, why? You know, that's one of the first words we learn as a little kid. Why? The real key in life is to listen to the answer and make the answer part of who you are. And my parents ingrained that in us. It, it's not no good just asking a question. Figure out, do the work, do the homework. And at the time, we had the internet on the farm. It was called Encyclopedia Britannica. I think that um, atmosphere of hard work on a farm, regular necessity and satisfaction that comes from work, um, combined with a curiosity about the world and how things work, and then a relentless necessity to not just accept ignorance, but to, to one by one knock off the things I was ignorant about, that I was curious about, and then with that, improve my perspective and understanding of the world around me. I thought it was normal. I still think it's normal. It's how my wife and I raised our kids. I think it was also very pivotal in in shaping the, not only the choices I made, but the successes that I had. Now, I want to go back to this air cadet, because from what I understand in my research, you got your glider, a scholarship to learn how to fly gliders at 15, and then a scholarship to learn how to fly planes at 16. That seems really young to be putting somebody in, in charge of that. How did that come about? Well, it's only young depending on, on your own personal experience and societal rules. I mean, if you look in wartime, there were, there were people leading squadrons in war at 19 years old. So, you know, I'd been driving vehicles on the farm since I was 10. So it's just another vehicle. Um, the real question is, can you learn all the theory and can you focus your immature uh, urges and emotions in such a way that you can do something that has a level of responsibility. You know, and that's why we have minimum ages for a lot of things, driving and drinking and voting. And, you know, how, how early in your life can you overcome uh, childlike urges? Actually, when I was 14, I, I spent a summer at leadership camp. And that probably served me as well as the following summer at Glider or the next summer at Powered, um, because all of those skills were necessary for the things that I tried to do later in my life. Do you think we're doing a disservice to our youth that maybe we should be encouraging more time mastering something versus just uh, touching on it? I think every adult and teacher uh, in the last 10,000 years of human history would say exactly the same thing. I'm sure Socrates and Aristotle and uh, they all despaired at the lack of motivation of youth. You know, that's just a natural adult feeling and perspective. Uh, the reality is the world has never been better educated than it is right now. Think of our pace of invention. It, it's accelerating uh, our ability to solve problems. Look what's happened with COVID. The speed with which so many different organizations around the world came up with uh, vaccines for this in an area where we've had very little vaccination success in the past. And yet here we are. We solved the problem so quickly. And that didn't happen by chance. It happened because so many people are well-educated. What are you individually inspired to do in your life? What What is exciting to you? If your life goes perfectly, 
what will you have a chance to do during your life? And then how can you get yourself from here to there? Is it just a matter of earning money or moving to a place or, or gaining skills or whatever so that you can have those things you dream of within your own life? And almost every single one of them is going to take focus and work and self-change to get there. It's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. I'm having the honor of chatting with Chris Hadfield. Coming up, we're going to talk about his first spacewalk when he went blind. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman presented by RBC. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. I'd like to give a big shout out to RBC's Future Launch a $500 million decade-long commitment to help prepare 3 million youth for the future of work. And how? Providing young people access to meaningful employment through work experience, skills development opportunities, networking solutions, and mental well-being support and services. Powering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow, that matters to RBC. So here's a common question. Can you cry in space? But you can see it just forms a ball on my eye. And so if you keep crying, you just end up with a bigger and bigger ball of water. Your eyes will definitely cry in space. But the big difference is tears don't fall. Ground control to Major Tom. Chatter that matters with Tony Chapman continues. Ground control to Major Tom. On the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. Lock your Soyuz hatch and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Hi, welcome back to Chatter That Matters. Chatting with Chris Hadfield. We've been talking about how he took his dream of youth from comic books to, uh, to uh, Star Trek to Neil Armstrong and turned it into a career where he learned how to fly and test pilot. But one day he became the astronaut. The, the kid that looked at space went into space. And you talk about, in a TED Talk, about your first spacewalk and going blind and not panicking. This is ground control to Major Tom. You've really made the grave. Tell us what happened and how could you possibly not panic outside of a, the space station, not knowing what's in front of you. Tony, spacewalks are the coolest thing ever. If you ever get a chance, make, make sure you, you take one to put on a, a spacesuit, which is really not a suit. It's a one person spaceship because it has to keep you alive and then pull yourself out into the eternity of space with the world on one side, gigantic and silent and, and beautiful and separate and you out in a three dimensionality that is different and separate from the world. It's quite psychologically impactful to be there. And I was looking at it, uh, obviously, uh, as much as I could, but I had a huge amount of work to do while I was outside. We don't go outside recreationally. You know, it's dangerous to be in a spacesuit. So we only go outside when we need uh, human ingenuity and uh, dexterity, you know, get our fingers into something and that it's really hard to make a machine do them. So I was outside building the big Canadian robot arm, Canada Arm 2. And while I was building Canada Arm 2, putting it together, not really building it, but assembling it out there, suddenly one of my eyes stopped working. And it, it, it felt like uh, when you get something wicked in your eye, you know, a bug or a piece of metal or, or a shampoo or something in your eye. And your eye just 
screams at you, right? Eyes are very sensitive and your eyelids snap shut and your instinctive human reaction is to reach up and rub it, of course, which I did and my hand bounced off my helmet, which made me feel foolish. Um, but I couldn't do anything about it. Just my eye was, I, it, I couldn't even open it because it was hurting so bad. And if I did, you know, manage to peer through a partially open lid, I couldn't see properly, like it was all smeared. And so I was thinking, huh, this isn't good. Something I've learned over my whole life is it doesn't really matter what you did in the past or what you wanted to do, what you set out to do. All that really matters is what, what you do next. Your life is just the sum total of all the little things that you chose to do next. And if you were unprepared for them, then you probably didn't make good choices. But I'd trained for it. Not specifically that, but I'd trained for having a, a problem while I was outside on a spacewalk. Who knows what it could have been? Maybe my seat, my suit could have popped a leak. Or maybe my suit dies and, and you know, where it's no longer pumping, or who knows? All kinds of things could go wrong. And I'd worked out. Uh, with all the training teams, how to react to those things. So when one eye went blind, I kind of went, huh, okay, well, that's, so what? I've had one eye with soap in it before. It's no big deal. What do I do now? Well, I've, I've got another eye. I could kill Houston, but they can't help me. I just thought, well, uh, it might clear up. It might not, but nobody can really help me, and I can still see out my other eye, so I'm just going to keep on working. But the trouble is um, our bodies are designed for gravity, and without gravity, tears don't fall. They just stay there on your eye like a big jelly. And it got deeper and deeper in my eye, whatever was contaminating and hurting my eye. And the tears sort of, you know, diluted it some, but eventually it got thick enough that it um, flowed across my nose into my other eye. And then I was sort of struck totally blind. I mean, I could, if I, if I forced my eyelids open, I could sort of see light and dark, but you know, not enough to be able to work. So now I, couldn't continue doing what I was doing. So I had to tell Houston because also it might've been a, an endemic problem with my suit that maybe they were seeing some data on or maybe something I didn't know about, although I'd spent years understanding the suits. Hey, Houston, uh, something's in my suit and it's got in by both my eyes and I'm blind. What would you like me to do next? And my partner that I was out spacewalking with, Scott said, hey, do you need me to come over to help? And I was like, well, not really because it, and I thought about it. Every time you close your eyes, you're blind and you don't die. And the world doesn't end. You, you know, just, okay, I can't see right now, but I, I have four other senses. And, you know, so it's like, get over it. It's just as if I close my eyes. And could I make it back to the airlock and, and finish the spacewalk if I needed without vision? Yeah, especially with Scott helping me. So, okay, great. I'm not going to die right now. So let's just work on the problem. Houston said, well, it might be this special uh, carbon dioxide removal stuff in your suit, lithium hydroxide, which is really nasty stuff. And you don't want it in your eyes and in your lungs because it'll do you a lot of damage. So they wanted me to vent oxygen out of my suit. And it seemed logical. So I, I popped a little valve down, sort of like Frankenstein, down on the left side of my neck. And that allowed my oxygen to hiss out into space. And it allowed emergency oxygen to flow in over my head. And that would both um, make sure that I was getting a fresh oxygen supply, but it also might help clear whatever contaminant was in the suit. And at first I thought, man, you know, here I am in space uh, squirting my own oxygen out into the vacuum of the universe. Well, we'll see how this goes for a while. But it did start to help. And I, my eyes teared enough and diluted the contaminant. And after a while I could see lousy, but I could see well enough and my eyes kept tearing and it evaporated and crested around my eyes. And it turned out to 
just be so simple. It was just the anti-fog chemicals off of my visor had gotten into my eye, a mixture of oils and soaps. But that's how I dealt with it. I practiced in advance. I'd visualize things going wrong. And then when things actually went wrong, I did a real a realistic assessment of the actual danger, not just my instinctive animal fear, but okay, so I can't see in one eye. So what? You know, okay, so I can't see on two eyes. So what? You know, what does that actually mean? Not just, you know, me being a little um, unprepared chihuahua shivering in the corner, hoping somebody was going to rescue me. And to me, that's kind of how I approach everything in life. Get ready for it, anticipate things going wrong, change my own skill set. When it does happen, really truly analyze what's happening and don't succumb to fear and then try and learn as much from it and benefit for others afterwards. When I read about people that have done extraordinary things, they often talk about this scenario planning that they've somehow imagined a variety of different scenarios. They've worked through the problem. So when they when something like that happens, it's not so much unexpected. It's a speed bump or it's an obstacle that they're confident they can overcome. Is that just, is that just is certain people that have that skill or do you think that that's something that all humans can develop? I think it's a mixture of both, Tony. Um, I think you can go through your entire life saying, oh, that's uh, uh, somebody else will make that decision or that's above my pay grade. I'm going to blame that on somebody else. Like I'll blame it on the current politician who's in charge of the country or I'm going to blame it on big pharma. I'm going to blame, you know, blame it on something external. So that gives you permission to then have no responsibility for yourself. And it's really easy and tempting to do. And I do it myself you know, to some degree. But in truth, uh, it's your life. And you could sit down right now and easily list the five biggest threats to you right now. You could say financial or existential, you know, life, death, whatever, or to my kids or whatever. If those occur, are we ready to deal with them or not? And if we're not, then how can we get a little better ready for them? you're not born with that. That's just a choice, right? You could do it today instead of just, you know, watching another Netflix or or another cat video, actually do that. You know, if a fire alarm goes off in our house right now, what are we all going to do? Or if I blow a tire on my car, or if I see someone having a seizure or whatever, a lot of people just sort of cross their fingers and hope and whistle past the graveyard. But the trouble with that is things go wrong and things go badly. And if all you've done to prepare for, for what's going to happen is hope, then when it happens, you're going to be overwhelmed and it might be life or death. So why not use some of the beautiful quiet time where most of our lives are to get ready for the inevitability of the things that are going to happen? I'm Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. It's Tony Chapman. The show is presented by RBC, and I have the great honor to talk to Chris Hadfield. So my daughter, Michaela, is an artist. She works in London, England uh, on diversity programs. And when she heard I was interviewing you, she was... So excited. She's been such a fan of yours. She's heard you speak live. And I said, what questions do you have for Chris? And she came back. She said, I need a day to think about that. How many am I allowed? I said, two. She just <laughs> and the first one she said is, Chris, do you think there's life beyond Earth? 
My wife's an artist as well. She's currently doing a degree in fine arts and design and ceramics. It doesn't really matter what I believe, Tony. Belief is the easiest thing in the world. It's way, way easier to believe something than to understand it. That leads to a lot of problems in the world. People think that what they believe is important. And it might be important to them, but they sure shouldn't inflict it on other people. Um, so it doesn't matter if I believe there's life out there. Who cares what I believe? The real question is, is there life out there or not? And the answer is, we don't know. Now, you can you can look at the probabilities. And up until recently, we didn't have a good way to do that. But with our best inventions over the last couple decades, we've actually started seeing planets around other stars to the point now that we know that pretty much every star in the sky has at least one planet. That's a big thing to know because we can't live on stars, but we can live on planets. So if we know that every star has a planet, we can count stars because they're bright. And by our guess, the number of, the minimum number of planets out there is staggeringly huge. It's on the order of a septillion planets, which you, you can't even imagine how big that is. Billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, heptillion, septillion. It's so many zeros, it may as well be infinite. So if there are an essentially infinite number of planets, and time is bigger than we can imagine too, but we've had you know 13 or 14 billion years since the Big Bang, life has been on Earth for 4 billion of those years. So even if you just said 5 billion, if you have 5 billion years with an unlimited number of planets, and we know for sure that there's life on Earth, then there's a reasonable chance that there's life somewhere else. You know, be kind of arrogant to think we're the only one that could have ever had this happen. Um, but of course, life on Earth was just blue-green algae for billions of years. Intelligent life, I mean, I think my, my guess is, based on that statistic, life is, is common. I think intelligent life might be rare, but that's just my guess. I don't know. It's why we're landing on Mars and, and, and looking around our solar system and looking with our best telescopes. We'd really like to answer Michaela's question, but the, the fundamental answer is right now the only life we have ever found is from Earth, and we're looking really hard to try and figure out um, whether we're alone in the universe or not. What I should also tell you about Michaela is she studied philosophy and psychology. She's, a, I consider an old soul and a big thinker. So the second question she had for you is, if you were to meet an alien, how would you describe the human race? What would you be most proud of? And what would you be most ashamed of? Yeah, my daughter's a psychologist. She's a professor of psychology. Uh, she's also on that side of the Atlantic. She's at Trinity University in Dublin. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to meet another intelligent life form that isn't human. And we sort of run into it with dolphins. They're pretty smart. And, and I think octopus, they're pretty smart. But it's a very, you know, how do you judge intelligence, right? Uh, an IQ test is very much cultural. So how do you even judge if something is intelligent? And so then how can you express to them what you're proud of and embarrassed about when, when you don't have much commonality of, of even understanding what intelligence is and, and how, how you can divorce it from culture itself. I don't know. What I'm most proud of for humanity is the, is the great and empathetic and productive things we've done. You know, the art that we've created, the way we've taken care of each other, uh, the, the nurturing of, of the spark of creative life. To me, that, that's the wonder of, of humanity the way we teach each other, 
and learn from it and, and, and the wonderful things that, that we have, we have created as a result. I delight in, in, in the creativity of nature itself and the beauty of a flower and a, and an eyeball and all the things that exist. But human creativity is wondrous. And, and to me, that's what I'm most proud of. What I'm most embarrassed about is when we constantly succumb to our base nature. Chimpanzees experience joy and delight at creativity and, and laughter, and they make each other laugh. And, but at the same time, they maraud and murder each other and rape each other. And we're, we're genetically so close to the other great apes, including chimpanzees. But we have the capacity to be so much more and to behave so much better. And what I'm most disappointed about is when, you know, vanity and greed, emotional impulse become our driving factors. And I think that's where we are not only the least productive, but we're the most destructive. And so to me, those are the sort of the spans of, of humanity. And if we ever find another intelligent life somewhere, it'll be a lot of fun trying to explain those ideas to them. my chat with Chris Hatfield. He's an amazing storyteller. Like when he took us back to his family table, a family that encouraged curiosity. Or when he looked up as a young boy and saw this massive array of stars. And then one day on television, watching Neil Armstrong step onto the moon and saying to himself, that's what I want to be, an astronaut. How many kids dream it, but don't do it? When I look at today's generation, do they have that same moonshot? What are they thinking about in the future? You know, the world we're in is changing so dramatically that people say that 30, 40, even 50% of the jobs that exist today are going to change or be replaced because of the march of technology. So what are they going to do to find and pursue their path in life? And that leads me to another story. RBC called me in one day a couple of years ago. They wanted to tap into my creative mind. They were launching something big. They, they wouldn't share it until I arrived. And my mind immediately wondered, was it a, something to do with their Olympian program or their music? Something to do with the uh, biometrics and a new way to pay. And I walked in to this boardroom and it was this small, it wasn't a window, but this giant whiteboard and the smell of markers that dance across it as the facilitator takes notes. And then they shared with me something that was bigger than anything I had heard of in my 30-year career. RBC, over the next decade, was going to invest $500 million to help youth find and pursue their path in life. Four pillars were going to support this program, which they ended up calling Future Launch. Help youth gain new skills to be part of the changing world, grow their network to put themselves in position for getting jobs, find ways to get valuable work experience while enhancing their mental well-being. And RBC, their goal is to prepare 3 million Canadians to find their future of work. I encourage you to search RBC Future Launch. Here's just one example, RBC Upskill. It's powered by artificial intelligence. It's like this virtual career counselor. Someone can go in there and get personalized career tools. What are career relevant skills, education, and interests and work experience? What do I need to go after my moonshot? So here's to RBC and making the future of Canadian youth matter. Next week on Chat of the Matter, I chat with Dr. Anne Kavokian. She's a Canadian who wrote Privacy by Design, was institutionalized around the world, 
and whose life is dedicated to protecting your privacy in this wild, wild west of digital. This is Chatter That Matters. I'm Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.